Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Hello, how are you? I'm good. You know, it is, it's Pride Eve, Pride's Eve. For those of you who don't know, so this weekend is, uh, well, the whole month of June is LGBT Pride. Um, but, and uh, Pride festivals are happening all over the country. And tomorrow, LA is having its Pride Festival. Um, and uh, when's San Francisco having theirs? Do you know? The end of the month, right? Okay, <laughs> you know, you know what it is. <laughs> so I wanted to honor that, but it was also brought to my attention there was another national event that's happening that we need you to know about, okay? So it is National Donut Day. Yes, yes. So I wanted to pass this around to the different donut, people, donut fans here, so. Donut people. Have a donut, enjoy, enjoy having a donut. Oh, here. There we go. <laughs> we'll do that on, on National Carrot Day. On National Carrot Day, we'll do that. We're so happy to have you here. So, so happy. You know, wow. You know, I, I came in here and there was like all of these um, chairs out. And I said, and all these people are saying they, they, they want to support it, but they can't be here tonight because there are a ton of events going on tonight. So I actually took away chairs. So I'm sorry, people. I'm sorry people are standing. I'm sorry that you're standing. But, we, you know, please, uh, you know, we're... We'll uh, get some chairs out as soon as possible. We also have three up here. Have, can we have some right up here? Look up our noses. You know what I'm saying? Look up our noses. Really. All right. Um, a few announcements before we begin. The first one is, if you have a cell phone, please put it to uh, the silent position. You don't have to turn it off. As a matter of fact, you can tweet, Facebook, Instagram, all you want. Feel free to do that. Just make sure that you have Skylight right behind that picture. Okay, right behind. Okay. And if you say, at Skylight Books, and I see it on our tweet, I will retweet it to our 18,000 followers. 18,000 people. So feel free. That is a lot of people, right? So... Um, so thank you very much for coming. We also have some terrific people who will be coming to the store. Check us out at worldwideweb.skylightbooks.com. Tomorrow we're going to have um, Abdi Nazimian for his book, The Walk-In Closet. And then on Sunday, June 8th, that sh this should be a lot of fun, Cheryl Lu Lian Tan for her book, Singapore Noir. Okay, so, you know, lots of, lots of wonderful stuff to, ha to do here at Skylight Bookstore. Um, but tonight, uh, we are here to um, honor uh, LGBT literature. Woohoo! 
Let me tell you how this began. It started three years ago. This is our third year doing it. Is that um, three years ago, Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa really wanted to do something to honor LGBT pride, and so he put together this pride committee. And there've been other, you know, affinity group committees like, you know, Asian pride, you know, African American pride, Latino pride, women's pride, you know, all these. But there, there wasn't LGBT one. So he put together this, 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 this committee and says, well, let's do one. Um, and I served on it. And uh, what was really great is they says, well, let's do, we're going to do a, um, a writing contest, a writing contest. And uh, all the other affinity groups, Asian, Latino, African American, they actually stopped it because no one was writing. No one was entering the contest, actually. But when the LGBT one happened, we got all of, the, all of this writing coming in, you know, and that it, it, from young people you know, young people and allies. And we said, oh my God, we have all these beautiful voices trying to speak, you know, all these wonderful voices trying to speak about, you know, either growing up gay or lesbian or having uh, friends or relatives who are gay and lesbian, parents who are gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender, you know, these wonderful stories are coming out. And I says, well, you know, yes, we have these great pride events. Yes, we're going to, you know, I'm sure lots of people will be, you know, all over West Hollywood, you know, um, which is great and wonderful. Have a good old time. And okay, I'm all pride-filled, you know, but I also wanted to say that um, we've contributed um, a lot to the culture in general, uh, particularly with the work that um, we've written. We've contributed a lot to the world of letters, you know, and um, the uh, writers I invited to come, uh, this is what I said, I invited uh, several writers to this event, um, uh, you know, regardless of genre or sexual orientation or race, ethnicity, I said, do you have a gay or lesbian writer, transgender gender writer, bisexual writer who influenced you in some way, and these people said, yeah, <laughs> they did, you know, regardless of genre, regardless of, you know, whatever. So um, we are going to have, uh, we're going to listen to some really amazing people tonight. Um, they're so amazing, I can't wait to read off their bios to you, really. I'm, uh, this is a very eclectic group, and I'm so happy that they all said yes, and they're here tonight. Um, but the best part of curating this event is I get to, to be a part of it. So um, I am going to do a poem by Eloise Klein-Healy, um, and uh, with Eloise, she is, uh, she was named a few years ago Los Angeles's uh, Poet Laureate, which is uh, an amazing thing. Our very first one, surprisingly, you know, it's like our very first, you know, Poet Laureate, you know. Um, and uh, I met her first in the 1990s in a literary event for the Penn Center, which is a great literary organization. Check it out, Penn Center, all right. Um, she's also a, a founder of the MFA writing program at Antioch. So she's contributed a lot to our culture um, and to our development as a literary community in this town. Um, of course, I've seen her, you know, here and there. Um, she's had some health challenges, you know, recently. But you know, we're, we're glad that she's still around doing what she does. Um, and I wanted to. I chose this this particular poem. Um, I chose it because of what it meant to me uh, when I first read it last November. Last November, the country where my family was from, the Philippines, was devastated by a typhoon. And it was just heart-wrenching to me. Heart-wrenching to me. And 
um, one of the things what's great about working at Skylight is we have a really great staff here and every once in a while we do a Skylight Jam, a Skylight Jam, where we like, you know, people come, they, they say music, they, they bring all their instruments, they play music, um, and they allowed me to do this uh, to sort of um, recognize this uh, tragedy in the Philippines. And what was amazing about this is that I was so hurt and devastated by it, but I felt like I couldn't say anything, or like I couldn't somehow, because it hurt so much. And I thought, well, maybe I'll feel inspired somewhere in the poetry section. So I was looking through the poetry section, looking through the different books, and I came across um, this poem by Eloise Klein-Healy and her collection, A Wild Surmise. Is that a great cover or what? Is that a great cover or what? Um, and this particular poem is called Driven to Meet You in Rainy Weather. Because there is so much wanting, because desire is muscle and blood, I wait for you in rainy weather because my arms are full of life. Because the wind that flusters my umbrella will shake your shining hair because metal posts and signs can't warm to the beauty of rain on your face like I do. We are driven because of so much wanting. We are driven muscle and blood to hold and wear each other. We are driven because the weather in our veins is warmer than the world. The weather in our veins is warmer than the world. And as necessary as that storm was to teach us to pass tools across your muddy hillside, to teach us we touched through work, we touched through shovel handles, tile pipe the rocks we carried, and wet all through and dirty and laughing, we stopped all the water we could stop, channeled it off in trenches, dug by hand, saved what we could save, and I worked harder to reach you than I knew. I worked harder to reach you than I knew. Was it three years or twenty years? From turning my head from my feelings and like the old cliché. Talking about the weather. But not being able to change it. Don't blame yourself for what I feel. I say blame the sky.
Blame clouds. Believe in the star's grip of fate or the power of the moon to pull stars down my face. Don't blame yourself alone for the storm breaking inside me. And I don't ask me not to cry when I think I could lose you now. Don't ask me not to cry when I think I could lose you now. Too much has happened too much. Like all the rain this year. When one cloudburst followed another, turned simple roads into rivers. Don't ask me not to feel adrift. The whole world this winter was afloat. Sudden and powerful waterfalls roared out of the hills. But that was nothing compared to loving and loving finding you, finding myself, driving in water over my wheels, driving to meet you in rainy weather. Thank you. That was Eloise Klein-Healy. Our next reader is Naomi Hirahara. Uh, she's a terrific, amazing writer. I met her first uh, several years ago. We're how long? Decades ago. Decades ago. We're planning the very first, um, and so far, maybe, yes, the first, the premiere, the inaugural, but right now last. <laughs> A lot of work planning this Asian American Literary Festival. Woo, we, had, we had a great old time. A lot of work. Great old time. You know? Naomi Hirahara is an award-winning, Edgar Award-winning writer, which is, for those of you that know, it's a really big deal. It's like the, it's like the Pulitzer of the mystery genre. All right. Edgar Award-winning. Five books in the Mas, Mas Arai series, including Summer of the Big Bachi, Snakeskin Shamisen and Strawberry Yellow. She currently has a new series starring a female bicycle cop called, uh, and uh, uh, the first book came out in April, and it's called Murder on Bamboo Lane. Please welcome Naomi Hirahara. Okay, this is going to be a little different. It's going to, this is about creative friendship, faith, and talking animals. Um, in 1990, what was it, six, um, I left my job at the Rafu Shimpo newspaper. That's a Japanese-American news daily newspaper in Los Angeles. And I went to Wichita, Kansas for a nine-month writing fellowship. It was kind of in the Christian, those writers of, with Christian faith, um, not what you're thinking of, more in the uh, tradition of Madeline Leinga and um, the poet Richard Wilbur. And there was two fellows, was myself and a gentleman named Jerome Stewart, who was young at the time. Well, we, we were all young at the time, but he was younger than me. We were like night and day. I was working on my mystery um, inspired by my father, a Japanese-American gardener and an atomic bomb survivor. 
he was writing about talking polar bears. Um, he, I was from LA. He was from a small town in Texas in which um, he, you know, the guy is not athletically gifted, but he still played on the basketball team because there weren't enough guys in the in the school to form a basketball team. So, and that was Jerome. And uh, his uh, manuscript that he was working on was about a family in a small town in Texas. And there's a there's a tornado, and these talking polar bears appear. And um, so that that's what he was working on. Um, he um, also was adopted. Um, his, he was adopted into a preacher's family, a Baptist preacher, and um, so that was his life. And um, after the workshop, we went our separate ways. Um, during that time, um, Jerome, he went and got his PhD in English at um, Texas Tech. He um, was contacted by his birth mother. She lives, she's like a psychic in Las Vegas. And um, he went to the Yukon. And during that time in the Yukon, he wrote a short story called The Talking Dog about a deacon that goes, a church deacon that goes into the forest with a black Labrador and a shotgun. And um, the deacon is prepared to kill himself. Um, but the dog starts talking and tells him not to. And in that story, I mean, you could probably figure out, you know, metaphorically, and I think for him, the talking dog was kind of like the spirit, like telling him, informing him. So, um, yeah, he, so since that time, he, uh, oh, he also was part of a church and challenged them and um, also went to another, started going to another church in the Yukon. Um, he now lives in Ohio, and this is, he's, he met a guy over the internet. He came out, well, I guess it was a slow coming out, but it fully came out in, in the Yukon. But he's um, living in Ohio, and um, he has now his first book deals coming out. It's One Nation Under Gods. It's, I don't know, I, I tweeted him, I'm not quite sure when it's coming out, but soon with Chai Zine and The Angels of Our Better Beasts is a collection of short stories. So um, I'm going to be reading um, a portion of his short story, Lemmings in the Third Year. If you want to read the whole thing, it's available online, jeromestewart.com, and it's S-T-U-E-A-R-T. And um, so in this short story, which was um, published in the Tesserats, uh, that's the Canadian publication in 2005, he has this character, it's a Japanese American woman, and she's a scientist, and she and another um, scientist go to the Arctic in a plane to do research, but then the plane goes down, and they are in the Arctic, and they encounter talking polar bears and talking lemmings. Do you, know, do you guys know what a lemming is? It looks like a little, it looks like a rat or it's a rodent, but it has no tail or, you know, which is great because I hate, I hate rats with long tails. <laughs> so, don't you, they're so gross. Okay, lemons in the third year and, um, and this is the, the main character's name is Kate and she's 
um, trying to explain to the lemming, the talking lemmings, about science and doing experiments and how it all works. just explain that the talking lemons are named after casinos because Kate is from Las Vegas. Okay. I stand up, brush off my coat, and walk quickly to catch up to the other two others in my team. Back home in Las Vegas, I was in charge of the Mendor lab. Diane Mendor really ran it, but when she got engaged, she became wrapped up in a lot of other things, and I just naturally took over. This feels like a lab all over again, a bunch of young grad students who think they know what they're doing, blustering right into a big pit, live and learn. Orleans and Luxor have scampered right up to the owl, but the owl is not reacting to them in the way I expect. She sees me, obviously, and this alarms her. Even though I'm shorter than the average human, there's no average here to work from, so I look tall. I've always wanted to be tall. Perhaps I stretch a little when I get up to her. I've also only seen dead owls this close. I know a fellow student who's going into the zoo science. She visited a whole owl sanctuary in California, said they scratched a lot and they were flighty. I wonder what owls here are like. This one has her feathers ruffled and she's not hissing. She's not moved off the nest either, but I can't tell if she's upset or excited to see us. Hello, I say to her. My name is Kate. Well, these are nice. Thank you very much, Kate, she says, eyeing my lemons. They're not for eating, I say. We're here to ask questions, Lexor announces, pulling out his notebook. Uh, I already had a team asking questions. I told them everything I knew, she says. But her tone of voice is cheeky. She swivels around and pulls out a lemon from her nest. You might recognize this one. The lemons chitter among themselves, some high-pitched squeaks, which are either terror or delight, or maybe both. <laughs> They obviously know the lemon. Mirage turns to me. He was a colleague. But that it's a fact, not much emotion. I haven't gotten used to facial expressions yet. The agreement, you know, says the owl. Of course, says Luxor. I say, what do you mean, the agreement? These are my lemons. Orleans looked me square in the eye and damned if he didn't put a little paw on his hip. You won't be eating us. You told us that. 
Well, I might. I might just get a hankering for lemon in the middle of the night, I say with a little jealousy on top of my voice. Listen, I turn to the owl. These are my lemons, and I'm training, training them to do things differently, so you can't eat them. They're experimental. The owl blinks. Dear, why do you want to change a good system? She knows. She knows the lemons are basically naive and knows their questions don't amount to anything. She's taken advantage of them. She nestles her wings close to her. Feel free to ask me any question you wish. For the agreement, she asks firmly. She adds firmly. She doesn't look at me. Luxor, Orleans, you guys come home. I'll talk with you. They aren't listening. Luxor has a notebook out and is flipping back through small pages. Orleans has the inkwell and props it up between the two of them. Luxor looks back at me to show me how it's done. Now, he says, turning to the owl, about how many lemons do you eat in a given day? About two, she says without pause. And how large is your territory, Luxor asks. It squares 45 to... 53 on the Lutau field. Luxor beams as much as a lemon can. Well, now that's a large area, and you only eat two lemons a day. Do you have a mate? I do, says the owl. And how many lemons does he eat? He eats two a day as well, on average, although lately he's been flying off into other squares. She turns to her right. He could be anywhere right now. Exactly, says Luxor. And if you had to predict your appetite in, say, a year's time, would you say that you would, on average, eat the same amount of lemons? The owl thinks, blinking, then widens her eyes, little explosions of yellow. Well, I don't know. Let me see. A year's time? Well, I, just thinking of that makes me terribly hungry. You know, anything can happen in a year's time. Without warning, she lunges forward and gobbles Orleans up, slapping her beak against the inkwell. A squirt of red and inky black runs down the or owl's feathers. Luxors and the others are in trance. I move forward and grab the owl by her throat and place a hand around her legs just ab above the talons. I don't want to be scraped. I squeeze until the owl's beak thrusts open. She must be in shock because she doesn't try to resist. And I turn her head towards the ground and shake her, trying to make her gag by pressing her throat. Nothing is coming out. The owl has swallowed the lemon whole. I know she can regurgitate. I've seen them do it. And with the signs of Orleans, there must be a lot more ripping and tearing before she swallows. She's just trying to make a point. So am I. The lemmings are clapping behind me. I can't tell if they're clapping because of what I'm doing to save Orleans or if they are cheering for the beautiful death of their colleague. The, wing, the wings of the owl slide open like a fan, and she's big enough that when she flaps, she can get a lot of pull. I stand and she is flapping against my face and gagging. Cough him up, I say like a gangster, but nothing is coming out. The wind bites my face and ears and I have the owl now shoved it down towards her nest, hoping by gravity something will come out. The wing is cradling my fat face like a palm, reaching around my neck, quivering. Finally, a body slips out of the owl onto the grass. It's covered in gunk. It's actually two bodies, and for a moment, I don't know which lemon is Orleans, but they both look still. I push the gasping owl away from the nest. She squawks about the agreement, the agreement. 
I rub my eyes and begin wiping away the gunk to figure out who is who. I've seen small rodents mangled in traps before, traps that misfire, spring on a leg, clamp down on the body of a mouse, and by morning, the mouse hangs divided by metal mesh. It's bothered me before, but not like this. One of them is barely moving, and I pick Orleans and wrap him in a scarf and place him in my pocket, the only warm spot. We have to go back to the cabin, I tell them, and I don't listen to their protests, and I don't check on the owl, even after I see her stumbling out of her nest in my peripheral vision. The cabin is full of scientists and a seven-foot-tall polar bear. All of them see me come in, and I go straight to the desk. Something's happened. Something happened, I say. My lemons jump up to the desk. The cabin is warmer than outside, but you can still see everyone's breath. I think I see concern in Dr. Brule's eyes. He's reacting to something I'm giving off, something on my face. One of the lemons, I tell them, unwrap Orleans and lay him on the table. He's still. Can I have the first aid kick, I ask? I've never patched up a rodent before. Not a lemon, not a rat, not a mouse, not even the flying squirrels I studied in California. If they were injured, they died. If they were dead, they we cataloged them. We put them in frozen bags until we were ready to take down notes. We thawed them a few days later with all the other dead animals, and we wrote down how they died, where they died, and how much they weighed. We sexed them, measured their molars to tell age, and we put them in a large black garbage bag because we had everything important we needed from them. Dr. Brule helps me. Dr. Kitashima stretches out the scarf like an operating blanket. We were interviewing a snowy owl, and then she ate him. He was moving 15 minutes ago, I say to Brule. He has some deep wounds, Dr. Kitashima says. Some of the gunk we wipe away from him keeps returning from the open beak marks near his tail. There are two cuts on either side of his face, too, and I can't tell if the blood is coming from his neck or his cheek. Cheek would be a flesh wound. Neck would not. Luxor, who rests his arm on a cup of water, says, We have the data. This is what happens. Well, I tell him, I didn't want to let it happen. I'm sorry. I pull off some bandages, and I cut a tiny square to wrap around his hind leg, almost like a diaper. I'm thinking that if I can stop the bleeding, he'll be okay. Someone will have to go back and stay with the owl, Luxor says. If we don't, she might get upset, and that will ruin all our data so far. This might spark a revenge cycle and increase our numbers of lemons eaten per day. Revenge factors are difficult to measure. Dr. Berlay gives me a look like he's doing the best he can, but it's not going to work. Neither of us have seen Orleans move. He's gone limp in my hands, even as I raise his tail to wrap the bandage. If he's dead now, Bellagio says, we can take him back as an offering to the owl and maybe save the data. I snap. I'm not interested in saving the data. God, he's your colleague. You weren't even the envoy to the owls. You are my envoy. Dr. Kitashima can't feel any pulse at all. He has sensitive fingers, worked with small seedlings and plants all day. I watch how tender he could be growing things. This wasn't going to happen, I say to Dr. Kitashima, because I don't know what I'm supposed to say to this. This too. How am I to account for this? Both doctors stopped for a moment, helping me to find my composure, not condemning me for my outburst. I re respect that. Then Dr. Brule takes a syringe with a dose of stimulant in it, I'm sure. He injects this into the lemon, and we wait. My sister had a hamster when we were little. 
It had escaped and ended up in the inner workings of the dryer. We found it when the smell from the dryer turned sour. She cried for days. I was stoic. I offered to buy her another hamster. A generous offer, I thought. She wouldn't speak to me, ran off to her room. I didn't understand why she was so upset. Later, she, um, she almost went into veterinary work. I went into biology. She owns two cats, a dog, a budgie, and several fish. I have no pets. Orleans does not recover. She was only in there for a few minutes, I say. Dr. Brule moves around to the side of the desk. Owls have a narrow throat, Kate. He was probably crushed, at least suffocated in that amount of time. It's possible that there's a lot of internal damage. I don't know. I look up at the ceiling. It's a high ceiling made for bears to walk around in comfortably. One here now just watches. He fills up the room in my mind like a supernatural building, being if I believed in them. Talking animals have that supernatural quality, the kind that makes me think I'm living in a fairy tale. I'm sure the bear doesn't understand the sanctity of life. I don't think I understand that anymore. I'll stop here. <laughs> I want to introduce you to uh, Jake Rosenzweig. Hello. He's providing some background music for us. Jake uh, is a staff here at Skylight, and we're very happy to have him here. Um, our next reader uh, is Ali Liebegott. And uh, yay, yes. Uh, I just want to say that um, I was so happy when Ali, when I found out that she moved down to Los Angeles, because uh, I know she's uh, been known to live in San Francisco. I met her here actually for a Lambda Literary an event here years ago. I don't know if you remember that, but I remember that for the IHOP papers, I think. And then I got to know her better um, uh, at a, a retreat in Mexico that she coordinates. Um, so talk to her about that. It's still going on, right? So, no, it's not. Oh my God. So, oh, really? Okay, we need rich donors. Anyone? Anyone? Really rich donors? Trip to Mexico. Really, we need that. Um, Ali Libagat is the author of the award-winning books The Beautifully Worthless and The IHOP Papers. In 2010, she took a train trip across America interviewing female poets for a project titled The Heart Has Many Doors. Uh, excerpts from these interviews are posted monthly on the Believe Her. And um, one of the reasons she's in Los Angeles is uh, she is a writer for a new show called Transparent, which is the story about a um, married man who transitions into womanhood. Is that right? Ladies and gentlemen, um, just to let you know, she'll also be here on October 11th for her new book, Cha-Ching, along with the writer Thomas McBean. Please welcome Ali Libagat. Thanks. So happy about National Donut Day. Do you guys want to sit down? You're okay? All right. Um, I'm going to read from Another Country by James Baldwin. Um, this is the, I love James Baldwin. I think the first thing I ever read was Giovanni's Room. And um, I've read, I mean, he wrote 20 books, which I didn't realize until, I knew he had written a lot, and I, I didn't know he wrote 20. Um, but Another Country, um, I'm a baseball fan, and um, feel guilty about spending the time listening to a baseball game because it's so long. It's like three hours. So I always feel like I have to do something besides that. So I used to paint 
and then make a painting during the baseball game. But then when baseball season's over, it's not okay to just paint. You have to do something else as well, as you know. And um, so I got another country on um, audio. And um, it was really cold. And I was living in San Francisco. And um, I had this like weird studio space. And it was really drafty. And I was sitting in my studio and um, listening to another country. I'd walked from my apartment there. And I couldn't stop listening to take my coat off and start painting. And um, just, just think that really James Baldwin's a genius. And um, so ahead of his time, still, and he's dead, which is terrifying. Um, but all of this, all of his work and um, all of his essays, I just, he was a Leo, by the way, which I'm also a Leo, so I understand that is the best sign to be. And um, yes, are you a Leo? How many Leos do we have here? And and of those people, how many are also James Baldwin fans? <laughs> See, it's not a mistake. And one step further, of those people, um, how many are New York Mets fans? <laughs> well, I will still read for you. Um, so as I was, I want to read um, the, the, just want to read, so when um, this book came out, um, it, I think it was 62, and um, he had written a letter, uh, article in the New Yorker um, about a uh, dinner that he had had. And um, I just want to read a quote from it because what I love about James Baldwin is um, it's astounding to think about that time to be him a black gay man writing those things in those times and critiquing so many different um, areas and that he could be on the cover of time and just that kind of radicalism just I, it gives me goosebumps to think about it but um, he's talking about uh, a black nationalist movement in this dinner he went to and I just want to read this quote which I just think is still so fitting and then I'll read um, one of my favorite parts of the book and I looked again at the young faces around the table and looked back at Elijah who was saying that no people in history had ever been respected who had not owned their land. And the table said, yes, that's right. I could not deny the truth of this statement for everyone else has is a nation with a specific location and a flag, even these days, the, the Jew. It is only the so-called American Negro who remains trapped, disinherited, and despised in a nation that has kept him in bondage for nearly 400 years and is still unable to rec recognize him as a human being. So, this whole book about like home and home, the luxury of a place to rest your head and everything. So I'm just going to start. Um, if you haven't read Another Country, I think they're selling them tonight, aren't they? We should all try to buy something, if even on a bookmark, to keep Skylight in business, right? And um, I'm going to buy a donut on the way out. Um, so I'll just jump in with Rufus. All you need to know is um, this is from the first part of the book, and um, Rufus is uh, homeless at this point. He's walking around... Um, New York City. It's the last night of his life. It smelled of thousands of travelers, oceans of piss, tons of bile and vomit and shit. 
He added his stream to the ocean, holding that most despised part of himself loosely between two fingers of one hand. But I've got to stay there so long. He looks at the horrible history, splashed furiously on the walls, telephone numbers, cocks, breasts, balls, cunts, etched into these walls with hatred. Suck my cock. I like to get whipped. I want a hot, stiff prick up my ass. Down with Jews. Kill the niggers. I suck cocks. He washed his hands very carefully and dried them on the filthy roller towel and walked out into the bar. The two boys were still at the jukebox. The girl with the striped blouse was still talking to her friend. He walked through the bar to the door and into the street. Only then did he reach in his pocket to see what Cass had pushed into his palm. Five dollars. Well, that would take care of him until morning. He would get a room at the Y. He crossed Sheraton Square and walked along West 4th Street. The bars were beginning to close. People stood before bar doors trying vainly to get in or simply delaying going home. And in spite of the cold there were loiterers under street lamps. He felt as removed from them as he walked slowly along as he might have felt from a fence, a farmhouse, a tree, seen from a train window, coming closer and closer, the details changing every instant as the eye picked them out, then pressing against the window with the urgency of a messenger or a child, then drooping away, d diminishing, vanished, gone forever. That fence is falling down. He might have thought as the train rushed toward it, or that house needs paint, or the tree is dead. In an instant, gone in an instant, it was not his fence, his farmhouse, or his tree. As now, passing, he recognized faces, bodies, postures, and thought, that's Ruth, or there's old Lenny, son of a bitch is stoned again. It was very silent. He passed Cornelia Street. Eric had once lived there. He saw again the apartment, the lamplight, and the corners. Eric under the light, books falling over everything, and the bed unmade. Eric, and he was on 6th Avenue, traffic lights and the lights of taxis blazing around him. Two girls and two boys, white, stood on the opposite corner, waiting for the lights to change. Half a dozen men in a heavy, gleaming car rolled by and shouted at them. Then there was someone at his shoulder, a young white boy in a vaguely military cap and a black leather jacket. He looked at Rufus with the greatest hostility, then started slowly down the avenue away from him, waving his rump like a flag. He looked back, stopped beneath the marquee of a movie theater. The lights changed. Rufus and the two couples started toward each other, came abreast in the middle of the avenue, passed only. One of the girls looked at him with a kind of pitying wonder in her eyes. All right, bitch. He started toward 8th Street for no reason. He was simply putting off his subway ride. Then he stood at the subway steps looking down for a wonder, especially at this hour. There was no one on the steps the steps were empty. He wondered if the man in the booth would change his $5 bill. He started down. Then as the man gave him change and he moved toward the turnstile, other people came, rushing and loud, pushing past him as, through, as though they were swimmers and he nothing but an upright pole in the water. Then something began to awaken in him, something new. It increased his distance. It increased his pain. They were rushing to the platform, to the tracks, something he had not thought of for many years, something he had never ceased to think of, came back to him as he walked behind the crowd. The subway platform was a dangerous place, so he had always thought, 
It sloped downward toward the waiting tracks. And when he had been a little boy and stood on the platform beside his mother, he had not dared let go her hand. He stood on the platform now, alone with all these people who were each of them alone, and waited in an acquired calmness for the train. But... I'm going to skip ahead just a touch, just to say, you guys, he wrote, first of all, all of this on a typewriter, if we can go back to that, which I think is a miracle. And the other thing about reading James Baldwin is, and books of this time, which I think is, I love so much, is the expansiveness of like how language could be, you know, and that everything wasn't edited down to one thought. You know, you could say the stairs were empty, there was no one on the stairs. All right, this is coming to the sad part. I mean, this whole, this book isn't a, you know, Archie book, but anyway, okay. Is that, who's read it? Okay, you know where we're going here. All right. The train began to move, half empty now, and with each stop it became lighter. Soon the white people who were left looked at him oddly. He felt their stares, but he felt far away from them. You took the best, so why not take the rest? He got off on the, at the station named for the bridge built to honor the father of his country and walked up the steps into the streets, which were empty. Tall apartment buildings, lightless, loomed against the dark sky and seemed to be watching him, seemed to be pressing down on him. The bridge was nearly over his head, intolerably high, but he did not yet see the water. He felt it. He smelled it. He thought how he had never before understood how an animal could smell water, but it was over there, past the highway, where he could see the speeding cars. Then he stood on the bridge, looking over, looking down. Now the lights of the cars on the highway seemed to be writing an endless message, writing with awful speed in a fine, unreadable script. There were muted lights on the Jersey Shore, and here and there a neon flame advertising something somebody had for sale. He began to walk slowly to the center of the bridge, observing that that. From this height, the city, which had been so dark as he walked through it, seemed to be on fire. He stood at the center of the bridge, and it was freezing cold. He raised his eyes to heaven. He thought, you bastard, you motherfucking bastard. Ain't I your baby, too? He began to cry. Something in Rufus, which could not break, shook him like a rag doll and splashed salt water all over his face and filled his throat and his nostrils with anguish. He knew the pain would never stop. He could never go down into the city again. He dropped his head as though someone had struck him and looked down at the water. It was cold, and the water would be cold. He was black, and the water was black. He lifted himself by his hands on the rail, lifted himself as high as he could, and he leaned far out. The wind tore at him, at his head and shoulders, while something in him screamed, Why? Why? He thought of Eric. His straining arms threatened to break. I can't make it this way. He thought of Ida. He whispered, I'm sorry, Leona. And then the wind took him. He felt himself going over, head down. The wind, the stars, the lights, the water all rolled together. All right. He felt the shoe fly off behind him. There was nothing around him, only the wind. All right, you motherfucking God almighty bastard, I'm coming to you. James Baldwin. Wow, right? Wow. 
Um, so for our, our next reader, um, I do want to re reiterate that we do have books available by the authors of Being Read tonight. All right, Eloise Klein-Healy, um, James Baldwin, uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, Lydia Yuknovich, actually, who Wendy will be reading. Um, we don't have Jerome's yet. Uh, um, also, all of the readers here tonight, tonight um, Naomi, Ali, and Jervy, also have books available that you can buy um, right up there. Um, when it comes to Wendy C. Ortiz, I will say that maybe after this reading, I, I don't, I don't know, but um, uh, Justice, after this year, she will always have a book out now. Her first book, uh, Excavation and Memoir, will be published um, in a month or so. Is that right? Next month in summer 2014, and that's a big congratulations to you, Wendy. That's a big deal, right? Remember authors? Remember? Remember authors when you got your first books published, you know? And so I was like, so, but it's not that she's just getting one book published. She's getting two books published this year. <laughs> two books published. What a way, that's a, talk about a coming out. Talk about it coming out. Um, Wendy Ciortis is a Los Angeles native and a fine curator herself in Los Angeles. You may have seen some of her work at the Good Luck Bar. Um, her first book, Excavation and Memoir, will be published by Future Tense Books in summer 2014. Her second book, Hollywood Notebook, is forthcoming from Writ Large Press, um, also in 2014. Uh, she currently writes the monthly column On the Trail of Mary Jane about medical marijuana dispensaries in Los Angeles from McSweeney's Internet Tent. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Wendy C. Ortiz. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Lydia Yuknovich, um, I read this book, The Chronology of Water, which has often been called an anti-memoir. Um, I read it in early 2011, and I curate this reading series, Rhapsodomancy, and I'll read a book by someone and just be like, I'll just go on the internet and be like, come read. I've got a spot. And I was so excited that she got back to me right away. She lives in Portland. And um, she read in August 2011. And she read from this book. Um, and what's funny is that there were a couple of chapters in it that I think there were at least two that I read aloud to my partner. And one of them, which I'm going to read tonight, um, an excerpt from it. They're short chapters. Um, one of them I had read out loud to my partner. And then when we met Lydia at the Good Luck Bar, um, my partner said, oh yeah, Wendy read this section out loud to me. And Lydia was like, that was actually really edited down. And I would totally send you the unedited pages. We have not gotten them. We haven't asked for them, but it was a lovely offer, and I should probably ask her <laughs> because that would be amazing to have something unedited by her. All right, so this is called um, Love Grenade 2, and this is just, um, it's a section of a very short chapter. Hannah was one of those lesbians who looks like a beautiful boy. Hazel eyes, that cool short curtain of hair hanging over one eye, broad shoulders, little hips, barely there titties. More like M&Ms. Hannah played basketball and softball and soccer when she wasn't being a Eugene Lesbo, an English grad student. She used to wait for me by my blue Toyota pickup truck between classes and hijack me and drive me to the coast where we'd stay up all night getting it on in the back of my truck, drinking Heinekens and waiting for the sun to come up. Then we'd drive back and go to class, or I would. Hannah thought grad school was kind of lame. She much preferred sex and club dancing. 
So when Hannah captured me and my best friend Claire in the hall after our 18th century women writers seminar by grabbing our wrists and pulling us toward the wall, I already knew it would be something sly. She smiled her sly Hannah smile and whispered, want to go to the coast? I got us a room. Claire blinked so blankly her eyes looked like a doll's and I think I coughed academically. But I have to admit it, my crotch went messy pretty much that instant. Listen, you probably think you wouldn't, but I'm telling you, if Hannah said, get in my truck, we're going to the coast, raising her little trickster eyebrow and putting her hand right underneath your breast and against your first couple of ribs going, I dare you, you'd go. Women go to the Sea View Inn, and I have to spell this for you, S-E-E-V-U-E, two words. Women go to the Sea View Inn because of the themed rooms. The secret garden suite, private garden. The crow's nest, nautical. The Salish, Native American. Princess and the pea, weirdly medieval. Mountain shores, rustica. Far out west, cowgirl. The cottage, you get the house to yourself. We had the cottage. The little cottage sported a fireplace, so I said, don't do anything without me, and drove off to get firewood. When I got back, the door was open. I went in. The two of them were in bed with the covers pulled up just underneath their tits, Hannah's M&Ms and Claire's glorious pendulous globes, smiling like Cheshire cats. Cheshire cats who had looked pussy. And in the middle of the bed was a little suitcase that Hannah brought, filled with toys. I immediately dropped the wood on the floor, shut the door, and stripped, launching myself onto the bed like Superwoman. Whoever was staying in the Princess and the Pea or the Salish or the Far East, they must have gotten an earful. Hours of woman on woman on woman whose regular lives didn't allow for such wild abandon. Sometimes, Hannah's fist up my cunt, Claire's mouth on mine, or me sucking her epic tits. Sometimes, Hannah on her stomach, me up her ass with a strap on, Claire behind me giving me a reach around, a skill she intuited. Sometimes Claire on all fours, me and Hannah filling every hole, licking every mouth, rubbing her clit, making her scream, making her entire corpus shiver, her head rock back, her woman wail, let loose gone primal, cum and shit stains and spit and tears. I came in Hannah's mouth, her face between my legs like some goddess in a new myth. Claire came with Hannah's fingers in her ass and pussy, her body convulsing and falling off the bed, me wrapped around her and laughing and hitting my head on the wall. Hannah came jamming a dildo up herself while I buried my face in the clit of her. She pulled my hair. She pushed my head. Claire curled under me, licking and gagging, but not, not, not stopping. I don't know how many times we came. It seemed unending. We ate each other. We ate pickled herring. We ate Gruyere cheese. We ate the animal out of each other's bodies. We ate steak. We ate chocolate. Two women, my chocolate. We drank each other. We drank all the beer. We drank all the wine. We peed outside. We got high on skin and cum and sweat. We got high on pot. We came in waves. We ran out and into the waves. I wanted to stay like that forever, outside of any relationship I had ever had and inside the wet of an unnamed sexuality, the moon a grand spectator, as full of alive as the ocean outside the door. All the night it was difficult to tell whose body was whose. The woman of it drowned me. It nearly cleaved my mind. And again, again, waves. Thank you. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you. Yes. 
All right. Uh, Jervy Tur Turvalon, I was so happy to find out he was available for tonight. Um, he is the author of All the Trouble You Need to Understand This in the LA Times bestseller, Dead Above Ground. He's an important part of the literary community here in Los Angeles. He's an award-winning poet, screenwriter, and dramatist. Jervy was born in New Orleans. Raised in Los Angeles. Can I, can I call you Jervy Turvalon? Can I do that? <laughs> Jarvie! <laughs> he now lives in Altadena, California, with his wife and two daughters. I do want to make an announcement about his new book, Monster Chef, which will be coming out. He's going to have a book party at uh, Vroman's in Pasadena, another wonderful independent bookstore, so please check him out. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Jarvie Turvalon. Such great reading. <coughs> It's always good to go last and try to bring up the rear. Um, so I grew up in uh, South LA where, you know, basically you can get your ass kicked for like sneezing. And um, if there was any, you know, differentiation from anyone, I mean, I was an exotic, I grew up in an African American neighborhood. Essentially, and, you know, we're New Orleans Creos, and in New Orleans, we perfect our genes by marrying our cousins. And so um, we've gotten really good at it over the years. So, um, but essentially it was a certain kind of conformity in the community. If you did anything that stood out, you could do whatever you wanted. You just had to survive getting your ass kicked or, you know, being that kind of person. I wasn't that kind of person. I was a poot butt nerd who just liked to read and um, just get along to get along. Uh, once I asked my brother, I said, so what would you do if you had a brother who was gay? And he said, kick his ass. So I was thinking, oh, okay, I'll just move on here. Um, and as time went on, I, got, um, I went on to study at UCSB, and essentially I became a literature major. And I got to read all these fascinating books. And like, I remember reading Billy Budd by Herman Melville. So essentially, the captain falls in love with Billy Budd because Billy Budd is really good looking. So eventually, mayhem ensues, and Billy Budd is tortured. Billy Budd finally slashes out, kills the captain, and Billy Budd, you know, is uh, executed. He has to walk the plank, or they hang him, I can't remember what. Then there's another story, um, let's see, um, Ernest Hemingway's A uh, Simple Inquiry, where this Italian sergeant is, a captain's inquiring about this uh, younger guy, Pedro, good looking guy. Did he have a girlfriend? It's very threatening. Nothing ever happens, but you know that something's gonna happen that's not gonna turn out well for either one. And then the last story I remember reading like that was D.H. Um, Lawrence's The Prussian Officer, where essentially, this guy's so good looking, the Prussian officer essentially tries to kill him, the guy kills the officer, he's hunted down. And he's so basically it seemed to me as I was growing up, I was like 17 reading these stories that, you know, uh, as a literature major, that, you know, if you had any interest in a guy, more than likely you were going to come out, um, you know, killed or beaten or something like that. And then I discovered, uh, you know, Oscar Wilde that, you know, was this witty, wonderful guy that described with this rapier-like wit what life would be like if he could live the life he wanted to live that he couldn't live. But he defied it by you know, writing these kinds of things like uh, English society that was so incredibly homophobic that, uh, and hypocritical that I guess the laws that they, have in, that they had at the time in England essentially were assimilated in African culture, uh, their colonial properties 
and so now the kinds of crazy homophobia essentially is just kind of linked straight to the, uh, you know, the English notions of what was uh, right and proper. So anyway, I'm going to read a little bit of you know, just some of these aphorisms that you probably already know. America is the only country that went from barbarism to decadence without civilization in between. <laughs> Biography lends to death a new terror. I think that God, in creating man, somewhat overestimated his ability. <laughs> to disagree with three-fourths of the British public is one of the first requisites of sanity. Whenever people agree with me, I always feel I must be wrong. The only thing that sustains one through life is the consciousness of the immense inferiority of everybody else. And this is a feeling that I have always cultivated. <laughs> I don't play accurately anyone can play accurately, but I play with wonderful expression. As far as the piano is concerned, sentiment is my forte. I keep science for life. When the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Work is the curse of the drinking classes. My own business always bores me to death. I prefer other people's. <laughs> I can resist anything but temptation. Life is far too important a thing ever to talk seriously about. Experience is the name everyone gives to their mistakes. We're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. What is a cynic? A man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Vile deeds like poison weeds bloom well in poison air, prison air. It is only what is good in man that wastes and withers there. We have really everything in common with America nowadays except, of course, language. <laughs> the public is wonderfully tolerant. It forgives everything except genius. The truth is rarely pure and never simple. 35 is a very attractive age. London society is full of women of the various highest birth who have, of their own free choice, remained 35 years. I was working on the proof of one of my poems all the morning and took out a comma. In the afternoon, I put it back again. That's his top 10 tips for great writing. Illusion is the first of all pleasures. It is a very sad thing that nowadays there is so little useless, I'm sorry, I love this one. It is a very sad thing that nowadays there is so little useless information. Most modern calendars mar the sweet simplicity of our lives by reminding us that each day that passes is the anniversary of some perfectly uninteresting event. One should always play fairly when one has the winning cards. Patriotism is the virtue of the vicious. Selfishness is not living as one wishes to live. It is asking others to live as one wishes to live. The only thing to do with good advice is pass it on. It is never any use to oneself. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. The one true mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. I'm sorry, did I read that right? The true mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. I like persons better than principles, but I like persons with no principles better than anything else in the world. I love acting. It is so much more real than life. Thank you.
and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.